Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. I've entitled the message today, Samaria, a history of hatred. We're going to do a little history lesson this morning. I apologize for those of you who can't stand history. I hope that you'll uh, learn something anyway. <laughs> uh, this morning in our study of the fourth gospel, we come to the fourth chapter in the story that Glenn read this morning of Yeshua and the Samaritan woman at the well. This story is loaded. I mean, with symbolism, there's just types. This is really a loaded story, and I really wanted to get to it today. But uh, as I got in here, I got stuck on the Greek word day. And so we're going to have to focus on that and try to explain what that means. And hopefully you'll see that in a minute. Um, in this chapter, we Lazarus shows Yeshua moving north from Judea into Samaria, where he has another important conversation, but this time is completely different from his conversation with Nicodemus. Very different. We'll see that as we get into this text. Let's look at these first um, three verses here. He says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees heard that Yeshua was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Yeshua himself was not baptized, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee. Now this three-verse sentence provides the background for what's going to follow. The first two verses of chapter 4 return to the, really speaking of the competition between Yeshua and John the Baptist. Now, of course, the competition wasn't between them, but the disciples were involved in this competitive spirit. These verses bring to a close the section that began in 3.22. Verse 3, then, provides a transition verse to Yeshua's encounter with the Samaritan woman. Verse 1 says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Yeshua was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Now, this is the first time that Lazarus describes Yeshua as the Lord. And this is appropriate in view of the superiority of Yeshua that both John and Lazarus had just established in chapter 3, 28-30, and 31-36. But I want you to notice that the, the ESV says Jesus instead of Lord in this text. And what's the difference? Well, basically, this just boils down to textual criticism. There are several manuscripts that have Jesus. There are several manuscripts that have Lord. The better renderings, the better manuscripts have Lord in it. And that's why the New American Standard went with Lord. Not really a big deal, people, because Yeshua is Lord. And so, however you want to take it, but I think the better reading, the better manuscripts, uh, definitely have Lord in them. Alright, this is the only passage, verse 1 here, in the Gospels where it's recorded that Yeshua's disciples are baptizing. It's the only place you're going to find it in the four Gospels. And I think we have to ask, what kind of baptism are Yeshua's disciples doing here? And the answer is, it must be the very same thing John's doing. It's a baptism of repentance. It's got to be. It can't be the baptism of the Spirit because that doesn't happen until after the resurrection. So in a, in a short period of time, Yeshua and John are doing the very same thing. They're preaching repentance. They're preaching the arrival of Messiah. Yeshua's in the area of Judea. John has moved further north. So they have overlapping ministries for a very short time. But now John's ministry is decreasing and Yeshua's is increasing. And this kind of brought a little tension to John's disciples, which really shouldn't if they'd understood John's whole message was, it's Yeshua, it's all about Yeshua, go to Him. John represents the Old Covenant. And we see here that he is being replaced, and we see that Yeshua is replacing Judaism. In verse 2, uh, John adds, or Lazarus adds, adds this parenthetical statement. He says, Yeshua himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. This is typical of Lazarus to add these kind of points to clarify things. He points out that Yeshua really wasn't baptizing, his disciples did. Or he could say Yeshua baptized only by using his disciples as agents. Now, why does Lazarus feel the need to tell us that Yeshua didn't baptize? Why do you think he had to throw that in there? Well, given the later fragmentation of the church into leader-oriented schisms, I think he had to kind of make a separation here. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.12. He 
Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. Those are the, that's the spiritual group, okay? I'm of Christ, alright? So they're all breaking up and saying, I'm of this person, I'm of that. Look what Paul says. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say they were baptized in my name. So, you know, people are, you know how people are, they just tend to these groups and tend to be, you know, I want to have something that makes me superior to somebody else. So, I think the Lazarus wrote this in here, suggesting why Yeshua didn't personally baptize anyone, because he doesn't want this group of people to be, you know, thinking they're superior because they were baptized by Christ. You know, and, I, and I'm sure that later somebody would have started the first church of those baptized by Yeshua. You know, and this would be the greatest church because we were baptized, you know, and they would divide from every other believer. It's amazing the things we want to divide over. Man, that we could work harder on uniting instead of dividing over the littlest, stupidest thing. Is it really that big a deal who you're baptized by? And I think that's why Lazarus throws this in here. He he didn't really baptize anyone. Okay, So we're not going to have the first church of those baptized by Yeshua. Not going to start it. Verse 3 says, He left Judea and went away again into Galilee. Now the Lord Yeshua had ministered in Judea, but now He's departing and he's heading toward Galilee. In Judea, he'd been preaching repentance. He'd been preaching the coming of the kingdom, as we said, just what John was doing. Now, what's interesting here is the verb that Lazarus uses here for he left. It's a word that can mean something like abandon. And I think there's some symbolism here. He abandoned Judea. Yeshua had ministered in the temple. He had ministered in Jerusalem. And his ministry was largely rejected. So when we read that he abandoned Judea, this could be speaking of something that is judicial. I'm leaving this place, they don't want to listen. And I think this reminds me of what we saw earlier in 111. He came to his own, the Jews in Judea, and those who were his own did not receive him. They didn't want to listen. So he is abandoning, so to speak, Judea. Now, why does the knowledge that Yeshua's disciples were baptizing more people than John's force Yeshua and His disciples to withdraw from Judea to go to Galilee? He says that's why He went to Galilee, because you know they heard this. Well, this point marks really the beginning of the Pharisees' hostility towards Yeshua. And since it was not the time for the final confrontation between Yeshua and the Pharisees, the Lord withdrew to the north where the Pharisees had much less influence. Now, in case you may be thinking that Yeshua is running out of fear of the Pharisees, let me remind you what we saw in the last chapter. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Yeshua is not the victim of any human impulse, All right, Nobody can touch Him without permission. Watch what He says later in 10.18. No one has taken it away from Me. He's talking about His life. I lay it down on My own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. So Yeshua is in control. He's not running because, oh, the Pharisees are after me. I've got to get out of here. I don't want to mess things up. No, he just doesn't want a confrontation right now. That will come later. He's leaving, the next verse tells us, because he must go to Samaria. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, There's a lot of discussion. Why did he have to? Why did he have to go through Samaria? Well, it's really not geographic. You don't have to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. You could go over to the coast, and then up, and then into Galilee. And you would skip Samaria, totally. Samaria there is to the north. Or you could cross the Jordan River and go up the region known as Perea, and you'd also miss Samaria that way. So you go up to the west and miss Samaria, you go to the east, and you would miss Samaria. Now, most commentators say that it was common for travelers from Judea to Galilee to cross the Jordan and travel up through Perea on the eastern side rather than going directly through Samaria. All right, and you know the conflict between the, you know, the Jews and the Samaritans, so they're just trying to avoid this area. Strict Jews strict ones, and that's what we have to understand here. It wasn't all Jews, but strict Jews avoided contact with Samaritans whenever possible because they didn't want to be rendered ritually unclean. 
But here's what's interesting. Josephus says, and he provides assurance of the aversion between Jews and Gentiles, I mean Jews and Samaritans. He makes that clear, that that aversion was strong. But he also says that Jews passing from Judea to Galilee or back preferred the shorter route. They would go right up, right through the middle there. So who's right? Are all these commentators who are saying that Jew would never go through there? Uh, I would tend to lean more toward towards Josephus just because he was there. <laughs> you know, he kind of had first-hand knowledge. He knew what was going on. But here's, here's a distinction, I think, that kind of renders them both right in a way. Most Galilean Jews chose to travel through Samaria rather than making the longer route. But most of those from Judea would take the longer route. They were the stricter ones. They were the ones that, I don't want to be contaminated by the Samaritan. So they take the longer route. Now, the longer route, or, or the shorter route, would take about three days. Well, remember, they're walking. They're not driving, not taking the Amtrak. They're walking. So it, it's a good walk, and they're walking through there. So those are the ways you know that you would get there to Samaria. And you can see that Samaria is in the northern part. you got Judea and then Samaria and Galilee. All right, get a visual picture of that. We're going to talk about that later. So with there being two alternative routes, why does the text say he had to pass through Samaria? The word had in this text is the Greek word day. It's often translated must in the fourth gospel. Lazarus translates it that way a lot. And it seems that whatever, whenever Lazarus uses this impersonal verb day, the necessity involves God's will or plan. Let me give you a couple examples just to show this. So he's saying he had to go through. He must go through. Not the must of geography, that like that's the only way. He must because it's the divine will. Let's look at a few texts. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must, the word day, be born again. So that's a divine necessity. You have to be born again. That's the only way anybody will ever get into heaven is if they are born again. So it's a divine necessity. Um... John 3.14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, day, must the Son of Man be lifted up. Yeshua had to be lifted up. He had to be put on the cross. Again, it's a divine necessity. It's the will of God. 4.20, our fathers worship in this mountain. And you people say that Jerusalem is the place where men must, day, worship. Worship was prescribed by God to be in Jerusalem at the temple. It was a must. It was a divine necessity. 424, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. You had to worship the way God said to worship. It's a divine necessity. So over and over we read of the divine necessity. I could go on, but I think you get the point, right? Well, one more, okay? John 20, verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise again from the dead. The resurrection was a divine necessity. It was the plan of God as the will of God. So why was it that Yeshua had to pass through Samaria? It was a divine necessity. It was God's plan. The phrase, it was necessary, was a typical Jewish way of saying it was God's will. Thus, the encounter with the Samaritan woman is not an accident. On the part. It's planned out by God. It's a providential meeting. And let me add here that I think the day here is prophetic. It's the must of prophecy. In other words, this was prophesied, so therefore he must do it. By going through Samaria, Yeshua is fulfilling prophecy. He deliberately goes there because he must. Now you might think that's a lot to do about a little tiny Greek word, but let's move on to Samaria and I want to focus on this now. Because in order to understand what's happening in this chapter between this woman and Yeshua, we need a little history lesson on Samaria. In order to understand why he must go through Samaria, we need to understand history. What was it historically that caused the hostility between the Samaritans and Jews? I think most Christians understand that. Samaritans, Jews had a lot of hostility. Now, if you ask them why, you might get a blank look. Okay, Why the hostility? Why don't they like each other? What's the problem? So we're going to talk about that this morning, and hopefully you'll understand when we're done why they hate they hated each other. Let's start at the beginning with Adam. Okay? No, we'll go a little further than Adam. Okay? 
Let's go to Genesis chapter 11, alright? After rejecting all people, the Tower of Babel was it for the Lord. He was done. When they built that Tower of Babel, he said, I'm done with you people. I've tried and tried to reach out to you from Adam on. You just won't listen to me, so I'm done. He took those people and turned them over to other gods. Deuteronomy chapter 32, 8 and 9 tells the, the, Deuter- the Israelite worldview. So he gave them over to other gods, and he says, I'm going to start all over. And he chose Abraham. And he entered into a covenant with him. Abraham had a son, Isaac, who gave birth to Jacob, who became Israel. Genesis 32, 28. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Israel means God rules or he who rules with God. So this is the first time here in Genesis that the term Israel is used in Scripture. And notice that the name Israel is not given to the nation, first of all. It's given to an individual, Jacob. So Jacob's called Israel. Jacob marries two sisters. Remember the story? Leah and Rachel. He wanted Rachel, got tricked with Leah, so he kept working to get Rachel. With these two women and their maids, came the twelve sons who became the twelve tribes of Israel. Ruth 4.11 says, All the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh make the women who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. So Jacob's twelve sons are called here the house of Israel, a term that refers to the twelve tribes, the nation Israel. Jacob's sons were delivered from Egyptian bondage and became a nation at Sinai when Yahweh gave them the law and He enters into a covenant with them. They were now called the house of Israel. Exodus 40, verse 38 says, For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. Now, Pay attention here for a second. I want to make a distinction here in this term. This term, house of Israel, in this context, refers to the 12 tribes, the nation Israel. Now, I said here, in this text it means that, because the term house of Israel refers to the 12 tribes here. But sometimes house of Israel is used of the northern kingdom, right? And everyone's familiar with that. Okay, so we know that house of Israel means the whole house or can mean the northern kingdom. But you know house of Israel is also used for the southern kingdom? This can be confusing, alright? But look at Ezekiel 3.1. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go and speak to the house of Israel. Now Ezekiel is a prophet to the exiles of Judea. But 78 times in Ezekiel, Judah is called the house of Israel. So be real careful when you use these terms because you know some we're prone to say it always means this. No, it doesn't always mean that. Okay? It's used for all 12, it's used for the northern, it's used for the southern. Now, I know that's confusing, but you have to determine the meaning by the context. And usually it's easy to do that. The 12 tribes of Israel remained united until after the death of Solomon. Okay, we can thank Solomon for the tribes the kingdom splitting up. This first Kings chapter 11, uh, verses 9 through 13, it says, Now Yahweh was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel. Why did Solomon's heart turn away? He had too many wives, okay? When you have a thousand wise people, you're asking for trouble. And I still have trouble figuring out how he's the smartest man on the planet, you know, and yet he's got a thousand wives. Well, he had 700 concubines and 300 wives. So that's a thousand women, okay? And there's still argument about the distinction between the two, but it's a thousand women. And they, the Bible says they turned his heart away. He says, who appeared to him twice, and he had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. All right, God commanded him that. That's the first commandment we receive, all right? But he did not observe what Yahweh had commanded So Yahweh said to Solomon, remember God's telling him, don't go after other gods. 
Alright? Don't do that, Solomon. And he might have stayed true if he wouldn't have got involved with the wives and their gods. He says, because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. So he's going to tear the kingdom away from Solomon because of Solomon's sin. You see this over and over in Scripture. Because people just don't listen, they come under judgment. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So the kingdom is divided because of Solomon's idolatry. He violated the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That's clear, isn't it? Should be. Look at Deuteronomy 1.10. The Lord, your God, this is Yahweh, your Elohim, has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. Yahweh is saying that He alone is Israel's Elohim. And He makes this distinction because other nations had their Elohim. Because Yahweh had given them Elohim as a judgment. But Yahweh was the Elohim of Israel. You know, if there wasn't other gods, why would Yahweh say this? You shall have no other gods before me. There aren't any, but don't have any before me. That doesn't make any sense. And he says this phrase, Yahweh, your Elohim, is used 279 times in Deuteronomy. 161 additional times in the Tanakh. Yahweh is saying, I'm your God, Israel. And in Deuteronomy 4.29, he says, he tells Israel, don't worship those hosts of heaven because they have been allotted to the nations. In other words, those gods are to be worshipped by the nations, not you, Israel. You're to worship me. And over and over he stresses this, I am Yahweh, your God. They would have no other gods before him. All right, the text in 1 Kings 11 goes on to say, it came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. And Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of his new cloak, which was on him, and he tore it into 12 pieces. He bought this new coat so he could use it as an illustration. Okay, Tears it into 12 pieces. And you get the, the, the picture there. The 12. Alright, this is the 12 tribes. He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you 10 tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Astaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Shemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the Ammon. Now, these are foreign gods, which Israel is worshipping, and they're not to worship. Again, you go back to Deuteronomy 4.29, he says, those are for the nations, don't you worship those gods. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and observing my statutes, my ordinance, as the father David did. Nevertheless, I will take the whole kingdom out of his hand. I will make him ruler of the days of his life in the sake of my servant David, whom I've chose, whom observe my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes." Now, when Solomon died around 925-926 B.C., the northerners refused to recognize his successor, Rehoboam, and Jeroboam became their king. Remember why they wouldn't recognize Rehoboam? They came to Rehoboam and they said, man, you're taxing us way too hard, okay? Your father, he just taxed us too much. If you lighten up on the taxes a little bit, we'll be glad to serve you. So what did he do? He went and he got some counselors, and the old counselors gave him good advice. Lighten up a little bit, and they'll be your. And the young counselors, he went to his own peers, and they said, "You tell them we're going to make it even harder on you, okay? We're going to make the Democrats rule over you." So he's like, "Okay, you know." And, and so when they heard that, they were like, "All right, we've had enough. We're we're not going to be. We're not putting up with this, and we'll leave." So this caused a division in the kingdom. 
This is uh, 1 Kings chapter 12, 16 and 17. When all Israel saw that the king wouldn't listen to them, when they heard the king say, nope, I'm going to make it harder, the people answered the king saying, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now look after your house, David. So Israel departed to their tents, but as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Now verse 20 says, It came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, that they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David. So Jeroboam is king over Israel. Rehoboam is king over Judah. The ten tribes elect Jeroboam. He is descendant of Joseph's son Ephraim. And now he is their king. Now, so the, the kingdom is divided. we got the north and we got the south. Now here's the problem. Three times a year, all Israelite men over 20 had to go to Jerusalem during the feast, the pilgrim feast, to worship Yahweh. Well, so the northerners got to leave the north and go down to the south to Jerusalem. You know, that was going to cause a problem. So, because they had to go down there to worship. They had to travel to Jerusalem. So Jeroboam fears that, you know, if they're going to Jerusalem, this might reunite the kingdoms. I mean, you know, they're realizing they really need the south and they got to be connected. So Jeroboam says, let me figure out a plan here. How am I going to keep my people and keep this thing separate? So he expelled all the priests and all the Levites from the northern kingdom. He rejected worship of the covenant at the temple in Jerusalem. He set up a new temple on Mount Gerizim in violation of the Sinai covenant. And he reintroduced worship of the golden calf. This guy's just, you know, he's saying, okay, we're just, you know, we're going to go all the way to the left and mess this up. This is 1 Kings 12, 26. It says, Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, Is it too much for you to go up to Jerusalem? Well, don't worry, i got another plan. It's, all, it's a long trip. You don't want to make all that travel. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Does that sound familiar to you? We heard that same thing in Sinai, right? He set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one. Behold your gods. This is what he's saying. These are your gods. These calves are going to represent your gods and you're going to worship here. He says, And he made houses for high places, and he made priests from among the people who were not the sons of Levi. He just decides, I'll just make you a priest. Doesn't You don't have to be from Levi. I'm violating all the rules here. I'm just doing whatever I please to do, okay? He wants to hang. This guy, politicians haven't changed, people. Okay? They do whatever they have to do to stay in power, so he's just doing whatever. Forget about Yahweh. Forget about the law. We're just going to make it comfortable for you people to stay here so I can be your king. <clears throat> it says, Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month. What feast was that? That's exactly right. There's no feast on the eighth, okay? On the seventh month, there's the feast. The three fall feasts are in the seventh month. There's none on the eighth, all right? The feast which is in Judea, and he went up to the altar, and thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, even the month which he had devised in his own heart. He just made this up. He just said, hey, this sounds like a good idea. Let's do this. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. So, I mean, he's just taken and just totally destroying the northern kingdom as far as their walk with Yahweh. They're being, the whole reason the kingdom split because of sin, and now they're just pushing it. All right? Later, a northern king named Omri came on the scene. 
And he built a city in Samaria. He built Samaria, basically. He made Samaria the capital of the northern kingdom. He also built a temple, and he built an altar to Baal, all right, in the northern kingdom. First uh, Kings 16 says, He bought the hill Samaria from Shemar for two talents of silver, and he built on the hill, and he named the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemar, the owner of the hill. Omri did evil in the sight of Yahweh, and he acted more wickedly than all who were before him. Wow, that's hard to believe, isn't it? Omri's getting worse. How can you be worse? I mean, they totally walked away from the Lord. So we see that Samaria here um, comes into being, basically. That's the city. starts out with the city. 1 Kings 16, 24-26 says, For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sins which he made Israel sin, provoking Yahweh, the God of Israel, with their idols. So the house of Israel split into two kingdoms. The ten northern tribes were known as predominantly the house of Israel. The two southern tribes, were, the southern kingdom was known as Judah. Both these kingdoms now, Israel and Judah, became harlots and forsook the Lord. All right, you hear about Israel's sin, well, you know, the southern kingdom wasn't all that much better. They had some good kings. They had their periods of, you know, obeying the Lord. But they also, because of their sin, were judged. Look at Jeremiah 3, 8. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. God divorced Israel because of their sin. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear but she went and was a harlot also. In other words, you know, the southern kingdom didn't learn anything from the north. They, they saw the judgment that God brought upon them, but they were immoral too. They're both immoral. If they're both immoral, why does God only divorce Israel? How come He didn't divorce Judah? Because it was through Judah that Messiah would come. All right? Look at Genesis 49.1. Then Jacob summoned his sons and he said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. That's a lousy translation. Okay, Days to come here is a krit haimin in Hebrew. And it means the last days. Let me tell you what's going to happen in the last days. He's talking to his sons, the twelve tribes, and he pronounces this general evil that's going to come upon them. Then in verse 10 he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, Yeshua here is referred to as Shiloh. The name means he whose right it is. It's a title, an ancient title understood to speak of the Messiah. All right, so the Messiah is going to come through Judah. Micah 5.2 says the same thing. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So from Judah is going to come this ruler. Now, as we go into Ezekiel, we learn more about the sin of these two nations. And just, you know, basically it's mankind, okay? Mankind, no matter what God does, they just keep turning away. They just keep on sinning. Ezekiel 23, 1-5, it says, The word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, there were two women the daughters of one mother, and they played the harlot in Egypt. They played the harlot in their youth. There their breasts were pressed, and there their virgin bosom was handled. Their names were Ahola, the elder, and Aholabah, her sister. And they became mine, and they bore sons and daughters. And as for their names, Samaria is Aholabah. So he's telling a story here, but he makes, us, makes it very clear that we understand the story. He says Samaria is Ahola. And Jerusalem is Aholabah. So now we know exactly who he's talking about. Ahola played the harlot while she was mine, and she lusted after her lovers, after the Assyrians, her neighbors. So the mother is the twelve-tribe nation of Israel. The two daughters are the southern kingdom, Aholabah, the northern kingdom, Ahola. These two kingdoms come out of Israel as a result of the two wives and the two marriages of Jacob. Now the capital city of Judah was Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel is Samaria. 
Now, the name Samaria eventually came to describe the district in which the city stood, and later, Samaria became synonymous with the northern kingdom. Okay, so very important that you get that. That northern kingdom is just known as Samaria. All right, bad connotation, but they just, that's how they viewed it. All right, now later on, in the 8th century B.C., Yahweh brought judgment on Israel's apostasy, and the kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians. He promised them it was going to happen. It came about. This is uh, 2 Kings 17. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Habor and the river Gozan in the cities of the Medes. Okay, here's judgment. God comes. He uses the Assyrians, the rod of his anger, he calls them, and he takes these children of Israel, he takes them away to Assyria into captivity. Now, this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against Yahweh their God. Over and over he keeps saying that, because of their sin. Who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods. Now, the text goes on to tell us, the sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. And they did not depart from them until Yahweh removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. In other words, he warned them over and over about this. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. So they're taken, they're removed from his sight. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cuthoth and from Ava and from Hamath and Sepharim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel so they possessed Samaria and lived in their cities. This is really important that you get this. All right? The Assyrians come in. They take the people. All right? This happens around 722 B.C. They capture the city. They deport the substantial citizens. They always did this. That The prominent, more substantial citizens. They left the poorer, lower classes in the land. They took the prominent citizens and they took them away. And they put them in other cities. But they also deported five different groups of people from the east into Samaria. All right? This was an Assyrian tactic. This is how they kept control. You know, it kept the people from uprising because if the people were all of the same mind, they could get together and overthrow the government. So they said, we'll take the substantial citizens out. We'll bring these people from five different areas and we'll stick them in there. They'll all be confused. They'll never be able to work together. This was one of their tactics. What happened is all the people in Samaria, they began intermarrying. And so what happens now? Well, the Israelites are just, they're a mess now. They're all intermarried. There's no real true Israelites. They're all, it's just a big conglomeration. They are now a nation of half-breeds. And this was very evil to the devout Jews. Worse yet, the true religion of Israel became intermingled with the heathen idolatry. Look at this in 1 Kings 17. He says, at the beginning of what they're living, at their living there, They did not fear Yahweh. So they bring all these people in from other places, and they don't fear Yahweh. They don't know Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the customs of the God of the land. They're like, "Uh, we need some help here. Okay, you sent these people in. They don't know the customs, so these lions are killing all these people. we got to do something here. Listen, this is common Near Eastern belief. The gods were local gods. They were gods of certain nations. All right? And that's, again, that's Deuteronomy. He took and he divided up the sons of men and he set these sons or sons of gods over these men. They had certain territories. They had certain land. And that's how it worked. One was the god of the mountains. One was the god of the valleys. They had these different gods. And he says, they don't know the custom of this god. The land we're in now, they just don't know that god's custom. So you need to help us. You need to teach us that. And so he sent lions among them, and behold, they killed them because they do not know the customs of the God of the land. Again, you know, he makes that point. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived in Bethel. So they took one of the priests and said, you go back there and you teach these people how to honor Yahweh. Well, how would he know? 
you know? <laughs> they were so far from that, how would he even know? So he came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear Yahweh. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the house of the high places which the people of Samaria had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. All right. Now, the men of Babylon made succoth Benoth, the men of Cuth made Nergil, the men of Hamath made Ashamah, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartuk, and the Sepharites burned their children in the fire to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Seravim. Now, these are foreign gods, again, that they're setting up to worship. They're in, they're in Israel now, but they're setting up these foreign gods, and they're worshiping these foreign gods. Again, go back to Deuteronomy 4.29, the gods that he said you're not to worship. They also feared Yahweh. In other words, hey, we got a lot of gods, okay? We're not afraid to stick one more up on the shelf. They feared Yahweh. And appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the house of the high places. So you can see that Samaria is a total mess. All right? I mean, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And they're just worshiping all these different gods. Most of them have been scattered in other countries. Those that left are intermarried. They're worshiping all these other gods. Well, you know, the story that Babylon followed them in a sense that God judge Babylon, the northern kingdom also, or southern kingdom also, and he sent the Babylonians in there to take captive the southern kingdom. And he did that. Well, later, those from the southern kingdom were allowed to go back and try to get reestablished. Okay, they, they fulfilled their 70 years of exile, according to Daniel. All right, and so they were allowed to go back, and so they were going back. Well, when the southern kingdom of Judah was allowed to go back into the land and rebuild the temple, the Samarians heard about it and they said, hey, we'll be glad to help you out. We'll come with you and we'll help you rebuild the temple. Well, their offer was rejected. The Judea, they said, no way. We're, you're Samarians, we don't want anything. See, the, the hatred was there and you understand why it was there now. Hopefully you understand why. And so they said, no, we don't want your help. Well, because they rejected the offer, now you got spite and now you got envy. So they did everything they could to keep them from rebuilding the temple. We read about this in Ezra chapter 4. The same thing happened later when Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls in Nehemiah chapter 4. So they're just, you know, causing all the problems they can because there's this hatred. Well, the Samaritans built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim opposite of Shechem about 400 B.C. And they dedicated it to Zeus Zenos. All right, so they build this foreign temple. They're worshiping another god. John Harkanus, the Hasmonean ruler of Judea, came in and he destroyed this temple. And he destroyed Shechem about 128 B.C. And so all these actions just resulted in the continuing hostility of these two groups. I mean, the Samaritans continued to worship at Mount Gerizim. And they accepted only the first five books of Moses as inspired. If you're a Samaritan, that's all you got. First five books. All right? The Torah. But it was a different Torah. It was the Samaritan Pentateuch. All right? It's slightly different textually than the five books of Moses as found in the Masoretic text that we have translated in our Bible. So they basically have the same text, but it's, it's different. There's differences there. They, they made the differences to accommodate their religion. All right? So the Jews view the Samaritans as biological and religious half-breeds. I mean, they're just a mess. And all of these events and factors had led to an intense hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews by Yeshua's day. Centuries of animosity left deep-seated hatred. And we've seen that in the New Testament, all right? So we have ethnic, racial, and religious issues here that made the Jews feel disdain for Samaritans. They were ceremonial unclean, they were racially impure, they were religiously heretical. And therefore, they were avoided. Stay away from them. And we really can't properly understand the story in John 4 with this Samaritan woman until we understand this text and, and the history that's behind us. Great seated hatred. These people had walked away from Yahweh. They had intermarried. They were worshiping other gods. So in Yeshua's day, the Samaritans are scattered among the Gentiles, as he promised they were going to be. 
And the ones living in the land were a mixed race. They lost their identity as Israelites. And they really became identifiable only as part of the nations. They just were gone. I mean, it was Israel was done. It was gone. Look at Ezekiel 4.13. Then Yahweh said, Thus will the sons of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I'll banish them. He took Israel and just dispersed them. Israel's gone. They're done. Hosea 8.8. Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. So God took them and He just spread them out. It's among the nations. And when He says among the nations, they've been swallowed up. He's just, they're Gentiles now, basically. They're part of the nations. But see, here's the thing. And this is coming back to our, our word day in verse 4. Yahweh had promised one day to reunite these two nations. Now, that's amazing. You know, there's some serious hatred here. There's a long history of hatred. But there's a lot of promises about reuniting them. Here's where people get off track. They hear, they read these texts about the reuniting and they think this is physically going to happen. No, it's not. Okay? This is a spiritual reuniting that only happens through the gospel. Let's look at some of the texts. In Ezekiel 37, The word of Yahweh came again to me saying, Again, you, son of man, take for yourselves one stick, and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. Ephraim is Samaria. All right, they're synonymous. Then join them for yourself, one to another, into one stick, and they may become one in your hand. When the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh. Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribe of Israel's companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. This is a reuniting of all the tribes. And the text goes on to say, Say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. Remember, He dispersed them. And I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. He is regathering the tribes of Israel. This is exactly what we see happening in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. People from all these nations are there in Pentecost and he's beginning the regathering. He says, I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel and one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. He's going to reunite these two kingdoms. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations. Notice verse 21 here. He's going to take them from the nation. This is a promise of restoration. I'm going to restore what has been destroyed. Look at Isaiah 11, 11 and 12. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand. Now, this people is a second exodus. He recovered His people in the first exodus. He brought them out of Egypt. This is a second exodus. This is an exodus from the law of sin and death. He's bringing His people into the spiritual kingdom through the Gospel. With His hand, the remnant of His people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Sinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. These are all places you see in Acts chapter 2. And He will lift up a standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed from Judah and the four corners of the earth. He's going to assemble these banished ones. Listen, the Assyrians had, scat- has, Assyrians had scattered them, but Yahweh had promised to regather them. And Yahweh says here, He's going to regather Israel, the ten tribes and Judah, the two southern tribes. (coughs) Excuse me, now watch the next verse. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart. Remember, Ephraim is Samaria. And those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim. What? There's going to be peace between these peoples? Ephraim is Samaria. There's going to be peace, he says, between Israel and Judah. And you know what this peace is? It's Yeshua. 
Notice also, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. He's talking about Israel here, and he says, Israel, you're not my people. Why? Because he dispersed them. Now they're Gentiles. They're not Israelites anymore. They've been intermarried. They've been dispersed all over. They're gone. They're out of the land. They're separate from Yahweh. But he says, it's going to be said to those people who are not my people, you're the sons of the living God. In other words, it's a promise he's going to bring them back in. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. And they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up to the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. The one leader is Yeshua, the Messiah. Now, Peter quotes this prophecy, and he applies it to Christians in the first century. All right? Peter's writing to the Christians here, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, and he says, but you are a chosen race. Where was that term used? That's a term for Israel. Peter calls the Christians a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. Again, another term used of Israel. A holy nation, again, used of Israel. A people of God's own possession. All terms used of Israel. He's saying, Christians, you're this. So that you may proclaim the excellency of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you were not a people. He said that to Israel in Hosea. But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, Peter is writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion. He tells us in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, he's writing to the house of Israel who were pilgrims. They weren't living in the land of their birth. And if you look at a map, you will see that the area of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, was the very area that Tanakh tells us the house of Israel was taken into the Assyrian captivity. That's where they took them. Now they are identified as nations or Gentiles. But Peter is writing to these nations who have become Christians, and he calls them a chosen race or generation. He says to them, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which have not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. This is a fulfillment of the promise that God made to the house of Israel through Hosea. The Samaritans were not God's people. He had divorced them. But there will come a time, he is telling them, when they will be called the sons of the living God. This is a title that is in opposition to the sons of idols or sons of other gods. They will once again be called children of the living God. Now, I see this prophecy in Hosea as part of what Lazarus meant when he said, you must go to Samaria. He says, you're not my people, you'll be the sons of the living God. And he says in John 4, 4, and he had to pass through Sarah. He must go. Yahweh had promised to restore the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and that promise is now being fulfilled in the Gospel. And Yeshua had to go through Samaria to take the Gospel to the Samaritans, just as He promised to do. The salvation of the Samaritans is the divine necessity of John 4.4, I believe. It's a divine necessity. He had to do it. And this is what he said. You go first to the house of Israel, then Samaria, you know, then the uttermost parts of the earth. But he got to go. He'd been to Jerusalem. He preached in the temple. Talked to Nicodemus. Preached in Jerusalem. Now he's moving to Samaria. He's going north. All right? He's taking the Gospel north. And John 4... And we'll see with the woman there from Samaria. Fleshes out John 3.16. Yahweh loves the world. In other words, it's not just Jews. The Jews felt God loves us, only us. Samaritans, no. He hates Samaritans. He would never have anything to do with Samaritans. Some Jews believe there's no way a Samaritan would ever become right with God. And he says, God loves the world. And let me demonstrate this to you. I'm going to Samaria. I'm going to preach the gospel to a woman Okay, that's really getting low in the Jew's mind. Okay, really. He's preaching to Samaritans. You don't do that. He's speaking to a woman. You don't do that. He's speaking to an adulterous woman. He's going to blow away all the cultural norms at that well. And the interesting thing, he's not afraid to do that, you know? 
And if we can gather something from this as we close it, hopefully this helps you understand a little better the history of the, the hatred that's between these two groups. They fought over you, you know, and Judah felt they were righteous because the Samaritans had, you know, they left God, they walked away from Yahweh, so they, we deserve to hate them. They're half-breeds, they're a bunch of people, they're just nothing but a mess. We don't need to even mess with them, all right? But here is the Messiah of Israel, and he sits down at a well, and he reaches out to an immoral woman who's a Samaritan. You know, how many times do we not associate with people because they don't fit the cultural norm? It's interesting that that's where Yeshua went. Right to those people, because they needed the gospel just as much as everybody else. You know, too, too many times we're judgmental as to who deserves the gospel, or who will respond to the gospel, you know, or who would be good for God to have. Like, boy, he'd be good. If God got him, God, the kingdom of God would really be benefit. Really? So God needs this person to help boost? No. And we just have this wrong attitude. And I think we need the attitude of our Savior that says, i got to go to Samaria. These people need the gospel too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your word to us. Lord, your word is so deep, so rich. I pray you just give us a little glimpse, Lord, of what's going on between Jerusalem and Samaria here that as we look next week at this woman, in our conversation with Yeshua, we'd be able to put some of these connections together, Lord. We'd be able to see what's going on here. Thank you, Father, for the richness of your word. Give us a heart, Lord, that desires to know it. Thank you for your grace to us. Amen. All right. Questions? Comments? Glenn. Well, thank you, Glenn. Thank you. Um, I've always wondered why in the division there, the Bible talks about 10 and 1, 10 and 1. You divide up the 12 right to 10 and 1 is just 11. Because <laughs> we know that the tribe of Benjamin was right. included with Judah. What why it wasn't 10 and 2? Yeah. You know, as I was going through this, I thought of that myself. And I thought, well, we know Benjamin's included in Judah, but why? why was Benjamin, you know... I don't know. I don't really understand that. You know, we know there are 12. There was always 12. Um, but that's the, that's the numbering, how it came out. And that's, uh, I think we get the point here that, you know, the tribes were separated, you know, and they both messed up. But at least Judah tried to come back, you know, tried to come back to the land, try to rebuild the temple, try to, of course, they never did. You know, in Ezekiel chapter 11, we see the glory leaving the temple. And the glory didn't come back until Yeshua came back and entered the temple. So the glory's gone. Israel, you know, is a facade at this point in time. All right, the priests don't know. It's The whole thing's a mess. They're still going through the rituals, but, you know, here comes the Messiah, and the, what do they want to do? Let's kill this guy. If they only knew their scriptures, they might have maybe known what was going on. Well, it's mentioned several times to not, uh, for the sake of the covenant of David, that there would always be a light. Right. Isn't that amazing? You know, and he calls David a God, a man after my own heart. Now, was David perfect? He was faithful to the covenant, but man, he was far from perfect. All right? You know? But a lot of things he did, kings in that day did, and they got away with, because they're kings. As a king, you can do anything, you know? I mean, we've seen that in our country, with our kings doing any, whatever he wants right now. Gary? Um, back when you brought Solomon and Kings where uh, the Lord said he was going to tear the kingdom from him. I just I saw that as a um, major frightening verse because if Solomon who had talked to God, who had communicated directly with God, and still walked away for certain. Yeah, that is uh, that's a thing that I think should bring caution to us all. You know, here's a man who was obviously close with the Lord, walk with the Lord, the Lord comes to him and says, you know, ask me whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And he says, give me some wisdom, help me to rule over this people. And God's like impressed, and he says, wow, because you have asked that, not asked for riches or your life or your enemies, you know, I'll give you wisdom. And here's the, I mean, people are coming from all over the world, here's wisdom. And it shows you that the wisest man can do the stupidest things. Okay? Yeah, that's right. Gary? And in light of that, 
didn't God know he was going to do that? Well, of course God knew. God knows everything. Has it ever occurred to you that it's never occurred to God? <laughs> In that same connection, I was thinking about the stupidity of the people when, when Jeroboam set up these other golden calves and said, this is your God. Where is it? I mean, these were Israelites. I mean, you yeah. Well, how, how do you do that? They know the history. They knew what happened at Sinai. They knew the judgment. Under the subjection and the legal rulership of Solomon's son, uh, do you have to go this far away from your God? Surely maybe there were some people who refused to bow. Oh, sure. I'm sure there was always a remnant, you know, that there would, would be faithful. Stupid things. And I think that's the illustration, you know, no matter how much people know, they're prone to walk away. They're prone to do stupid things, you know. And, and, and along that same line, like it said, even if there, there were some in the northern kingdom, nobody stood up. Nobody said no. We don't follow. Yeah, they followed right along, you know, with Jeroboam. Okay, two old golden calves? Yeah, we don't have to make that trip all the way down there to Jerusalem. Oh, that's cool. We'll do that. Sounds good. We'll, we'll appoint new people as priests that are not even Levites? We, yeah, well, okay. Let's just violate everything we know to be true. Now we have the golden internet. People don't have to make the trip all the way <laughs> <laughs> I will not touch that. John? <laughs> comments about all the Israelites that couldn't do right. First of all, they were dead. Absolutely. Uh, uh, there was none good, no, not one. All followed after unrighteousness. Period. And I think that was the whole purpose of Israel. You know, man, God set up a man, Adam. Adam failed. All men come under judgment because of that. And I'm sure there's people who are saying, man, I'd have done it differently. Man, if you'd have picked me, I'd have been, you know, so he says, okay, I'll I'll, let's try it this way. I'll pick a whole nation. Again, the whole nation actually, you know, shows we can't live up to it. We can't do it. We can't follow it. And they all, you know, showing the depravity of man without God, it's not going to happen. In the Garden of Eden, where the presence of God was, was the heavenly council, was the divine council also there? Absolutely, yes. That was, see, that was God's throne room. Eden was the throne of God, and where the throne of God is, there's where... You know, the council is. The council's together. They're with God. That's his, that's his. And Adam sat in the council, Job says. You know, he was in the council. He heard the wisdom. Huh? Well, I think that's what happened. I think one of the council, one of the gods in the council says, who's this man that, you know, we should serve him and, I, you know, I'm going to take over. And that's how, you know, things just went down. Because I think God initially created us. Listen. He initially created us to be His children. I think He created us to replace the council. We're to come in there to be His family, His children. And I think that's what's happening in salvation. He's bringing us back. And when the, the New Testament says that you're sons of God, I don't think we have a clue what that means. We're sons of God. You know, that's a title of divinity. You know, you're sons of God. You belong to God. Part of that council. And that's what Paul says. You sh don't you not? You should judge angels. What judging angels? Yeah, because we're sitting on the council. Huh? Oh, no, we don't become that. No. <laughs> Anybody else? We done? Several people have asked online what the Altab is. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I know I got a letter about that, too, and I keep forgetting. All right. Is it this this here, Garrett? This side? Right here. You You can't see it, okay? But people online can see it. There's, you know, I had someone write me and say, what is that two little thing? It looks like a T with a, a head of an ox through the T. That's the Hebrew letters Aleph Tav, all right? It, the, the Aleph Tav is found throughout the Hebrew Bible 
over 7,000 times, but it's not translated. It's never translated. And, you know, there's a lot of disagreement about what it is. Some people just say, oh, it's a placeholder, it's this or that. But I think the Aleph Tav represents Yeshua. And Yeshua said in Revelation, I am the Aleph and the Tav. He didn't use Greek. I don't think he was Alpha and Omega. But I'm the Aleph and the Tav. I'm the first and the last. So this is the first and the last of the Hebrew alphabet, and it represents Yeshua. He is the Aleph Tav. So that's what that symbol represents down there. It's their Hebrew, their their ancient Hebrew. Okay, the first Hebrew pictographic language, not modern Hebrew, looks a whole lot different than that. But you know, the ancient Hebrew, the the Aleph was an ox head with horns. That was the Aleph, and the Tav looked like a cross. The Aleph Tav. So that's so that's what that's. If you see that up there, that's what that's for. Sorry. Should have. Yeah. <laughs> I just got to make it a video clip. Look kind of like the, the skeleton uh, yeah. cows here. Right. <laughs> that's right. And that's, I mean, they were pictographic. It was a pictographic language, you know. And that's, it's a beautiful language, though, because, man, there's so much symbolism in that. Okay, we're really late, so I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Let's stand together and close in prayer, and we're going to be dismissed. Father, we thank you today for, again, the opportunity to gather together, Lord. I thank you for these people. I thank you for this family. I thank you for our extended family that watches via the Internet. I, I thank you for the privilege, Lord, to be able to broadcast. I thank you for your love for us, Lord. And I, I thank you for the hunger that these people have for truth. And I pray that you would just direct us. You would lead us. You would teach us. Give us the heart of Bereans, Lord, that we would not reject, we would not accept, but we would search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen.